0: often like commercial real estate has been seen as this um, uh, long-term um, but very, very solid um, return on investment. Um, you know, business, that a lot of pension funds, et cetera, invest into it. I mean, again, is, is that sort of a barrier to, has, uh, been a barrier to, to disruptive innovation? And, and what can they do really to, or what can the industry do to change that?
1: I don't think the industry can do anything to change it, but I think the world is changing it. So for example, it used to be quite a a lucrative thing to do to invest in shopping malls. Well, shopping malls don't look so good anymore. So best-selling author and
0: business strategist with more than one million books sold, Jeffrey Moore. uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Look, I mean, the the pleasure is is all ours, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, talking to us today. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, th- I think really, I wanted to take the conversation towards, as as you know, like this podcast is about uh, commercial real estate and the impact of of technology on that, um, and of course, put that into context of some of you know your theories that are often frequently referenced. Around the path uh, of disruptive technologies, so for example, of course, the famous crossing the chasm and zone to win if that's yeah. right with you
1: it sounds great, sounds good perfect. stuff. so
0: I think f- first of all, you know thinking about um, the the technology adoption life cycle from crossing the chasm, you know, if we considered that uh, or if we consider commercial real estate technology um, as some call prop tech generally um i'd be interested in your thoughts on where in the life cycle you think uh the majority of startups in in that space are and you know for what it's worth anyway right my my opinion and to borrow some of your analogies is that i I've, I've been seeing quite a lot of bowling alleys right so the companies that that are kind of cross the chasm or crossing the chasm discovering some pragmatists in pain but the majority of those you know uh pragmatist herd still waiting and watching the market. I mean, how, how does that, does that resonate with you, Jeffrey? It sure does.
1: Now, my experience with this, I've, I've had a couple of recent experiences. i did done some work with Johnson Controls, and, of course, they're very interested in smart buildings as part of an ESG portfolio going forward and, and just how they, you know, because I guess about 40% of the energy in the world is consumed through buildings. So that was, that's a big deal for them. Mm-hmm. And then I'm associated with a venture firm, uh, Wildcat uh, Technology Ventures, We've invested in a company called Remarkably, which is working with commercial, uh, home, uh, multi-family home property owners on their marketing spend and what marketing spend uh, is actually creating business outcomes for them versus just a lot of traffic and, and, and frankly, noise. So, so, and in both cases, it's really clear. The industry as a whole has been a very late adopting industry. And, and so it's only when you get an industry like that under pressure That it begins to take on the new technology. So this pragmatists in pain are you have to find these use cases where even a conservative customer base would say, we can't live with this any longer. And so that, and so I think then the bowling pin model was just use cases knocking over other use cases before it becomes generally agreed to, that everybody has to have it. So everybody has to have smoke alarms, right? But not everybody has to have, you know, uh, smart buildings or, or whatever. And so I do think, I think some people are still stuck in the chasm, by the way. I mean, I think in general, I think smart cities, smart buildings, smart roads are still still in the chasm or maybe even in the early adopter stage. But I think commercial real estate, in, in the right use cases, is adopting next generation solutions.
0: Do you have like a sense of why... Commercial real estate, like, has been so late to the party. I mean, I mean, you wrote "Crossing the Chasm" when now, like, it was in the in the years ago. It, it was three years ago. Exactly
1: right. it's, it, to be fair, it's been updated and it's still selling, and, and I think it's actually gotten up to almost two million copies. So it's, it's 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 a lot. But the point is, you people basically inertia is a very powerful force, mm. and as long as you can ride your inertial momentum for another year or two, as you know, many commercial real estate things. Are not managed particularly in a centralized way or an aggressive way. They're often part of a of a family portfolio or they're part of a very uh, kind of loosely federated portfolio. So that the the there's not a lot of emphasis on trying to get ahead. So really, the concern is, are we falling behind? And and I think for a, a long time, people have said, well, we can patch it here, patch it there. You know, it'll it'll be okay. And as long as you can get away with that, I think people will try to, get, particularly in a conservative industry, mm. people will try to get away with that. It isn't until a disruptor like an Amazon comes in mm. or like a fintech comes into banking and then all of a sudden people are going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we have to get on onto the new platform.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it, since that, that time when um, you, you published uh, Crossing the Chasm, And of course, I know you've you've updated it, but I mean, what have you generally in terms of technology, I I mean, obviously the basis of it still applies, but what have you seen that has sort of um, evolved with technology over that time?
1: Well, actually a lot. I mean, when Crossing the Chasm was still written, most of the disruption was actually happening inside the tech sector itself. So DEC was disrupting IBM. Or, you know, or, or you know, uh, Microsoft would be disrupting IP, you know, that that kind of thing. Or Google would di- disrupt, you know, Yahoo or whatever. What's happened in the last 15 years is that tech is disrupting other industries. So now, I mean, we, we saw it, the first place we saw it was probably media when Facebook sort of took on and social media took on media. And and then we saw it, we've seen it with streaming entertainment, we've seen it with retail, we've seen it with banking. Um, and so as, and, and now we're beginning to see it, you know, uh, in hospitality and in transportation. Uh, and so you start saying, okay, that's a big difference. The other thing that's a big difference is tech required a lot of investment. And so it was an enterprise oriented activity in the nineties. It wasn't consumer oriented, but now with mobile and, and cloud, Everybody has access to tech everywhere. So it's a much more pervasive resource. And so the the challenge for a people who are trying to ride the old paradigms is, you know, this is basically free for a startup to leverage. I mean, they can go to Amazon with a credit card and they they can be in your business, you know, in a short amount of time. So that was never the case before. So I think that the urgency to act more quickly and the more pervasiveness of tech are the two big trends I see.
0: No, it's a, yeah, it's an excellent point. And I it, I really feel over the last few years that I get a sense for that in, in PropTech commercial real estate.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean on, one sorry. more thing about PropTech, at least I've learned, which, which surprised me, is that the ownership in PropTech is federated in that the property managers, the property owners and the property users are often in different ecosystems even and so the ability to respond quickly is more challenging because you've got this rather loosely federated ecosystem that is not designed to sort of go to war quickly as it were
0: right yeah these within the industry these these silos of, of, of not information but also kind of you know structurally right like the uh the architects is sort of a different discipline to the building um engineer or the mechanical engineer etc etc yeah Uh, one question I I really wanted to ask you was um, you know if if we sort of just took one example of let's say a a company that is in one of these these bowling alleys that they have discovered some pragmatists in pain what would like a go-to-market framework strategy look like for for a company like that
1: well, the key thing then is the, the strategy for going after a, a pragmatist in main a use case-oriented marketplace, mm. is the first question is who owns the problem? And what you'll real find out is it's actually a three-part, three-headed beast here. There's an economic owner who's who's paying for the problem. There's a process manager who's actually sort of trying to ride herd on the problem. And, and there's a there, there's often a technical person saying, well, I'm a technologist, what exactly is it that you want me to do? And just getting those three clearly in view is a challenge for vendors, for startups, because you have to get all three to the table in order to sell a technology-based solution into the industry. Mm-hmm. Then the second thing is it's got to be a really compelling reason to buy. And so, the, in other words, if it's a, a nice-to-have or a should-have, you know, in any, if there's any pressure on the budget, it'll get kicked down the road. So it's very important to have one that's like, no, this is something we're going to solve this year one way or another. And then the third and final thing is what we call the whole product, which is, as a startup, you never really have the complete solution to a problem. You have the the thing that changes the game, but you still have to have the other players come in. And you have no ecosystem as a startup. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody wants to necessarily work with you. So orchestrating the ecosystem, bringing them together at the point of attack, you know, uh, to attack that compelling reason to buy for this target customer that's the whole discipline of crossing the chasm, and it's the discipline of niche marketing really mm. and, and, uh, and and startups often have this very you know horizontal technological we're going to change the entire universe you know vision, mm. Mm. which is great, but to get the fire started, you got to start at someplace, and that's what the use case marketing is for
0: and in a lot of cases, do you think that's where like the most common problem is right that, that they don't they don't focus. Yeah.
1: Yeah, particularly if you've got venture funding, because when you get venture funding, you're promising the universe, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and so and so you think you have to deliver the universe, and, and in fact, initially you have to deliver it in a microcosm, then it can become uh, a, a bigger a bigger world. Yeah,
0: no, that's a great point. And turning to your, some of the other um, books that you've written, specifically Zone to Win, right? Which I think actually in many ways is is more important to prop tech. Uh, how can you, these sort of larger, well-established companies um, position themselves to catch, uh, well, not, ju- not just to be on the wave, but, but uh, you know, catch it and really r- ride the next wave of innovation? Right.
1: Well, the first thing, if you are an established enterprise, you don't have to be first. You just can't be last. Right? In other words, you have to catch the wave at some point. You don't have to be the first one. You don't have to be even the best at the wave because, again, inertia is on your side. But what you can't do is be left behind by or crashed over with the wave. So the challenge that an established enterprise has is, it's it, it, by the way, it doesn't have any venture capital. So it's using its own operating income and, and retained earnings and working capital, whatever, to, to pay for things. And there's always a lot of stuff in the old model that needs fixing, right? So it's not like, it's not like there's money lying around that we can't figure out what to do with so, so the first thing is just getting that new thing funded. Now, to get it started, the, the, the established enterprises worry a lot about not being innovative enough. Uh, that's not really the problem. The problem is they're innovative, but then they kill it. And the reason they kill it is as it starts to scale, it's making more and more demands on a limited budget. And by the way, it's losing money. So, so I'm supposed to take money out of a cash-constrained existing business and pour it into a new business where it's gonna basically burst into flames. I mean, it's it's gonna be no returns. And, and at some point, the, the just that demand on people, it, 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 they just say, well, we can't we can't do that. And so that's that's how people ultimately get them. it's what happened to Kodak, it was, you know, it's what happened to Polaroid, it's what happens to Business Week and all these companies, they just couldn't get their head around it. So what Zone to Win is about is how would you manage your way through that challenge in a, in an open and transparent way that was constructed. And that's what zone to win explains. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, for, for example,
0: in some of the work we've been doing recently, I've definitely been seeing an increased level of um, corporate venture capital coming into, into prop tech. I mean, I mean, how do you view that in the, in the context of zone to win? I mean, do you think that that is a a, a good way for large companies to kind of outsource an? In, their incubation zone
1: yeah so the incubation zone is the place where you you take on something truly novel and it is a place where you want fast failure and agile and and all those things And it it doesn't lend itself to corporate governance in any normal sense of what we call the performance zone or the productivity zone. It's very, it doesn't doesn't work that way. The venture capital model is actually the right business uh, management model. But of course, most large corporations aren't venture capitalists. They're they're you know they're doing they're doing their own business. So I think it's important to have a zone and to manage the zone the way a venture capitalist would manage the zone. The problem with completely outsourcing it, however, is that you don't get a, you don't build any connection because at some point you're going to want to bring it into your established go to market, your established support, your system, building system. You want your your ecosystem to embrace it, which means you have to bring it in. So at some point you've got to you've got to get close enough to it to make it work. So I think you want a combination of internal startups and external startups and the other thing you can do is you can often do an acquisition to kind of get you to scale the problem with that for most people is the way a startup is valued is so different from the way an established enterprise is valued that the price to earnings ratio just looks crazy i mean it's like it's like you're valuing this person at like 20 times future revenues and i get valued at 1 yeah. i mean what are you talking about and and so there's a lot of challenges in in making that work and that's why and that's why the, the zone to win is addressing a really tough problem yeah to be fair
0: yeah no, absolutely uh, you mentioned acquisition there like and that's again you know obviously uh, an, another strategy uh, we see that again we see quite a healthy level of of acquisitions in the market especially last year um d- definitely up across the, uh, across many of the different sectors we look at um but often, you know, you, it seems to be quite difficult, especially with the larger acquisitions, for companies to really, you know, gain the momentum after they've done it. Like, I mean, in, in your sense, what are, how do you view that as a strategy, and why does it often yeah, it, not work?
1: It, it's, uh, <laughs> talking over you, uh, it, it, it's important because um, the, uh, um, the, the 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 classic acquisition model from twenty or thirty years ago was actually a consolidation model. It was in a mature industry where you're saying, look, we've got 22 car companies. We only really need seven. So we're going to acquire it. And, and people know how to do that. You could sort of it. They call it about synergy. But basically, you just smash them together and you you work it out. Because the ecosystem's the same. You're just consolidating an ecosystem. The problem with disruptive technology is it's two ecosystems. And in fact, the new ecosystem is actually potentially cannibalistic to the old ecosystem. So now you have this problem where your partners and your, and I mean, look at the automobile industry and the dealership model. The dealer is becoming part of the old model The the, you know, um, digital model is more the new model. Well, but the dealers are totally threatened by the digital. So how do you make that work? There's a problem like that with the architects and the engineers and the building maintenance people in a, commer- in a commercial building. Mm-hmm. So it, I think what you have to do is, is there are two forcing functions they have to be one of the other has to be present to make this work. Either you have to have a competitor wolf at the door and you realize like we're retailists right now with Amazon. You just if I don't do something, I'm going to get killed. Or and I think the, this one's more likely for commercial. I have a customer who's saying I will no longer accept the old model." Mm-hmm. But you have to have an external forcing function. And then the ecosystem realigns because the ecosystem says, well, you know, we all, we all want the money from the customer. So what is it we have to do exactly? and how do we get there but if you try to move ahead of those two then you have to be really visionary and take a lot you have to be like an elon musk with tesla you have to take a huge risk and most established enterprises are just not set up to do that and the investors in commercial real estate in particular have zero interest in disruptive innovation as an investment model the whole point of it is that it's a much more lower risk low you know uh, extended return type of model
0: i mean that that's excellent point right like that often like commercial real estate has been seen as this um, uh, long-term um, but very, very solid um, return on investment. Um, you know, business, that a lot of pension funds, et cetera, invest into it. I mean, again, is, is that sort of a barrier to, has, uh, been a barrier to, to disruptive innovation? And, and what can they do really to, or what can the industry do to change that?
1: I don't think the industry can do anything to change it, but I think the world is changing it. So for example, it used to be quite a a lucrative thing to do to invest in shopping malls. Well, shopping malls don't look so good anymore, <laughs> <I> mean, right? <laughs> and so all of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh! I mean, I mean, in fact, office buildings. Well, we office buildings. Well, remote work. I mean, now I noticed that you're not in an office and I'm not in an office right now. So, so, so it's like all of a sudden, and it's, and you saw WeWork come in and 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 do some creative things. They got a little bit too far over their skis, but but that but but they demonstrated that there was certainly a market for that. I think there's gonna be an enormous amount of change in the way in which global corporations as well as local businesses want to use space. And I think it's gonna have a big economic impact on the industry. And I think the industry's got, I mean, right now, for example, one of my uh, longest clients and deepest held relationships is with Salesforce. Salesforce built Salesforce Tower in San Francisco, it's 61 stories, it's the tallest building in the city. I assume right now about 50 of them are empty, right? <laughs> and so and so, will it come back? Well, yes, it will come back, but not the same way. And the way we use space and think about space is going to be very different. So I think there's going to be a lot of forcing functions on the industry that are going to say, this industry will not create the kind of returns you used to get. So if you want those returns, maybe you should look at bonds. Because this is not what's going to be going on in our industry for the next 10 to 15 years. There's going to be a revolution. Somebody's going to make a lot of money from it, but I don't think it's going to be the traditional players.
0: Mm. Uh, You make some excellent points. I I mean, just with that sort of different models, I mean, a lot of, even before the the pandemic, we work, I mean, these were trends that were happening, but really like in the last two years, it has absolutely sped up um, the level of sort of, how much disruption there is in terms of what space of using these different, you know, terms of like, you know, hybrid working, which really is exploding at the moment. But of course it's fulfilling the need, right? Absolutely. Companies at the moment are really struggling with like balancing uh, people working from home, people working in the office. And, um, you know, actually I think to the credit, like a lot of companies, startups and bigger companies are stepping up to that plate. And now Delivering some pretty good solutions.
1: Well, what's interesting to me is, look, we are social mammals, so we do not want to live in isolation from each other. We definitely want to be in place, but we, we're tired of living forty miles away from a city, because you can the only place I can afford, and driving in forty, you know, an hour and a half to do a commute to, to to come to come back. Now, you know, in some places like Amsterdam, you can bicycle to work; that's very nice. But but in my place in the U.S., not not the case. So I think we're going to be looking for a different a much more distributed architecture of a, of a camp where you'd say, look, our building is, we have a headquarters in the city, but we have like six or seven satellite offices in various sub-communities around our area. And and, and and we and they're very highly connected digitally. Like Cisco had this thing called telepresence 10 years or 15 years ago, which was like Zoom for a room, Zoom rooms, let's mm-hmm. call them. I think we're gonna have Zoom rooms. I think we're gonna say, look, it's better to pull together people, you know, in six or seven locations with incredible digital, you know, interaction like what we're having together right mm-hmm. now, and and use that uh, as opposed to saying, no, we're all gonna commute, even if you say we're only gonna commute Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which is kind of the the interim model. The interim model is going to be stay home some days, come to work some days. It's still coming to work. It's like that just can't be quite the right model. But not coming together is also cannot be the right model. So we have to, I think, find a new way to use space and, the, and transportation is going to be part of this. Like, why do we have to commute? Why do we need all this stuff? I mean, why can't we do it, uh, take more advantage of our digital capabilities? I think we will be able to do that going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you as well, like um right now what what would you prefer to be? Would you prefer to be in charge of a, a startup a prop tech startup or in charge of a large well established
1: prop tech company i think the the first the, the challenge of the second is you have all of the expectations of your past which are increasingly unrealistic to realize in the future, so if you're going to be in that second position, I think you have to figure out. Look, is this going to happen? It depends on your demographics. If you're old enough, you could say, "I'm going to squeeze out one or two more years and leave." Okay, yeah. fine. But if you're saying, "Look, no, I'm in the middle of my career," then you've got to realize I'm I'm about to go through a transformational change. And you know, people throw around this digital transformation as if it's something that's fun. It's not fun. It. I mean, it, it's just it's horrific. I mean, it's called creative destruction. <laughs> it's it's you know. This is, not, this is a war zone. So, But I do think it's important. I, I think it's going to be important to society and to government, and to taxation and to investment and to work life that this problem get dealt with creatively. But our our zoning regulations, our taxing regulations, the, the safety stuff, the, the whole fact that most of our building maintenance is outsourced to third parties who have no technology at budgets whatsoever, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big, big problem to solve.
0: Yeah, I mean you touched on some really interesting areas there, right? Like um yeah, I mean it, it'd be fascinating to see I think what's going to happen over the next couple of years. Um but I um, I think um, I pretty much agree with you there about uh, preferring a a smaller sort of smaller more nimble company as yes, it gets there's, there's less to lose, isn't there? <laughs>
1: Well, there, there is, and, and the truth is, in a disruption, you want to be, if, if you're in disruptive waters, you want to be in a small boat, not a big boat. You, you want to be able to dodge and move yeah. around and and, and get, get to get to destinations and be agile and do all those kind of things. So I do think for startups, there will be enough pragmatism and pain. I think what the startup has to be thoughtful about is to bite off the right size chunk of problem to tackle in any given one to three year period. Mm-hmm. Because because the industry is going to be in disarray, I think trying to go global with some massively quick solution, I don't think that's what's going to work. I think these more specialized solutions for the rest of this decade and this is going to be a 20 year problem. This is not mm. going to be a two-year problem. Mm. So so it's got a lot, it's got to be a long, it's going to be a long runway. And I think eventually it will build to global solutions, but I don't think they will come realistically in this decade. I think they'll probably come in the next one. That's a great point.
0: Uh, and just we're getting towards the end now i I wanted to give you um an opportunity to talk about you know what you're working on at the moment is there are there some new books projects in the in the
1: pipeline well my latest book is a little bit off the beaten path so i've been writing business books for the last i don't know 30 years but the latest book's called the infinite staircase it's a philosophy book it's about like how in the world did we get here? And in this world of big bangs and whatever, how in the world, where does ethics fit into a world if it started with, you know, atoms blowing up, you know, 13.8 billion years ago or whatever it is. So that, that's, it's called the infinite staircase. I care a ton about it. I'm not so sure that, you know, my, my business uh, uh, colleagues will, will or not, but I, I do. But I think on the business side, it is this book zone to win. And for, for particularly for pro tech companies, I th- what it just says is, look, there are legitimate interests inside your your enterprise right now that are in conflict with each other and there's just there's just no avoiding there's a there's a performance zone that has to deliver on the current business plan under the current conditions with current expectations there's a productivity zone that's got to make that performance zone as productive as it can as well as legally compliant and deal with all the regulations or whatever and that's 90% of your budget or more But there's all this disruptive stuff, which you can't ignore. So you really do have to have an incubation zone, although nobody inside your company really knows how to run it. So then you have to think, well, how the heck do we get that set up? But then the really tough one is when you the fourth zone, which does not exist normally, it's called the transformation zone. And that's when you bite the bullet. That's when you say, okay, this is the year. It's probably more like a three-year window where you say, we're going to go through a bad patch in order to get to the other side. And we need to have a coalition of the willing. So we need to get our, our, our people, our customers, our partners, our investors, our city governments, everybody on the same page to make this journey, or we're not going to get to the other side. And and, uh, and, and we do need build- I mean, there is another side, it's not like we're going to abandon buildings. Yeah, but, but boy, the, the way we reassemble the team is going to be a big deal.
0: Great. Well, look, Jeffrey, I know how busy you are. So like, thank you for being so generous with your time and uh, for talking to us today. It, we're but very grateful.
1: I, you know, PropTech is a really interesting e- example of the technology adoption life cycle, which is my life's work. So I, obviously I'm fascinated by it and I certainly wish you and your colleagues well.
0: Great, thank you so much. And we'll make sure we put um, a link to those uh, books we discussed in the uh, show notes. Oh, thanks great. again! Be fabulous. Bye for now. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank you.